No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. On behalf of the Lifehack team, thank you for watching this video. And for more clips and beneficial content, please subscribe to the Lifehack channel, your number one source for personal Islamic development. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'd like to welcome all of you back uh, for the Canadian Dawa Conference's next session with our beloved Sheikh Dawood Walid. And uh, we're going to be talking about many important topics uh, and topics, inshallah ta'ala, if you pay real good attention to and you engage with by uh, posting on social media, whatever you're learning, any gems that you find during the session, we are going to take the best gem that's posted on social media and you can win a brand new copy of Sheikh Dawood Walid's book, Blackness and Islam. So without further delay, so you have plenty of gems to post, I'd like to uh, welcome Sheikh Dawood Walid. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuhu wa maghfiratu. Sheikh, before we start, I want to share something with you in the audience. Uh, I ordered your book, uh, Blackness and Islam. And... Uh, before I could have it delivered to my house, uh, a brother showed up to me at my house and he gave me a copy Mashallah. of Blackness and Islam. Mashallah. And he, uh, he wrote me a message that I just wanted to share with uh, yourself and the, the audience. He wrote in here, uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspire us through our history to make history. So this is a message that uh, he wrote for me inside, you know, the, the front cover of this book. And as I mean, you can see, uh, I've, I've made a lot of extensive notes <laughs> as I went through uh, this book because uh, I uh, really benefited uh, from this book. And it, this is just uh, my nature. Anytime I read a book or if I hear an audio book, I like to make notes so that I can reference uh, different things, inshallah. And so as, as a result, afterwards, it arrived, my book. So this is the one without any notes on it um and this is the one that we're going to give inshallah as a as a gift so i received as a gift inshallah we can give this uh copy to somebody else as a gift blackness and islam why is this an important book for us today Sheikh, please bismillah rahim rahim alhamdulillah wa sallallahu ala seyyidina wa nabiyyina muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam wa ba'ab well i would say that this book <clears throat> has uh contemporary relevance in a number of different factors. And of course, in the past year, especially since the brutal murders of Breonna Taylor, which it was just a year anniversary yesterday, I believe of her murder. Mm, yes. And then George Floyd, who was, who was brutally lynched in Minnesota last year, mm. that there's been a new awareness talking about blackness and anti-black racism in the discourses, not just in America, but in the West in general. And I'd already started writing this book before those murders. Um, but I think the timeliness of it is to inject and have a discussion within the Islamic framework about blackness and what this has meant historically outside of a secular so-called woke identity politics context. So I think it's one reason why this book uh, has a level of timeliness to it. The second issue uh, as it relates to is that in this book, there are some explicit as well implicit responses to Orientalists and Pan-Africanists who make the claims, the false mm -hmm. claims, that Islam from the very beginning with the time of our beloved Sahaba, may Allah be pleased with them, and in early generations that Islam was, was some, is somehow anti-black or makes black people be like second-class Muslims within the Ummah. So there are things that are written in this book where I address it explicitly, but more so implicitly to try to de debunk uh, these uh, false tropes and narratives that are put out by 
uh, people who are adversarial to Islam, uh, some of them have an agenda and others of them are just, um, we could say, jahl basit. Uh, they're, they're ignorant, and but maybe their intentions aren't malicious. But um, this type of discourse, when it reaches black people, especially uh, African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans, that this works against our dawah when they hear this type of discourse. So in effect, this book is to respond to that, to inshallah, be a tool for the dawah amongst the uh, African people and Afro-Caribbeans who are not Muslims, inshallah, they can uh, have some proper information to rebut this and that they can see themselves in the Islamic narrative. And we pray to Allah that every single non-Muslim that reads this book has some stereotypes cleared up and we ask Allah to grant them hidayah so that they can all come to Islam uh, you know, I had a similar uh, conversation or I had a, uh, a similar question with uh, Dr. Abdullah Hakim Quick, and um, I want to pose that to you. How can we, uh, because I feel that we really underutilize uh, our potential and capability as a community, as an ummah, when we focus so much on identities. And, uh, you know, how do we balance that? How do we uh, capitalize and bring that togetherness and oneness of an ummah? And at the same time, recognize, you know, a person's identity. So you don't have to necessarily strip yourself of that identity. But how do we, how do we bring that identity, uh, you know, all together, bring all these identities together into the group, into the ummah, uh, and make us stronger rather than us just carving out territory for ourselves, uh, whether it's like, oh, my group has suffered more than your group, or my group has made more contributions to the ummah than your group. You understand what I'm saying? So how do we bring those identities together in order to enhance our communities? All right, so we have two extremes, and of course, the best path is the middle path, as the saying goes, that the best of matters is that in the middle, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made us He made us to take the middle way. So there's one extreme to the left <clears throat> where people get into nationalism, a type of blameworthy nationalism, to the point almost they worship their ethnicity or their race, and it becomes a type of chauvinism where they think they're better and thus people are less civilized or not as good as them. And there's even a nuance of this in the Arabic language where we have the word uh, wathania, which means idolatry. And then you have, the, and then we have the word watania, which means uh, um, nationalism or it can be patriotism. So that one harf in the middle, there's, a, there's a, a, a fine line between the tha and the ta that if we're not careful, we can make nationalism into a false god. We can make it into an idol. So that's the stream on the left. The stream on the right is is to, is to play the so-called uh, colorblind game. Mm. Allah did not make us colorblind. He made us to see colors. And he said this, that he... He put this as signs that he gave us different languages and skin colors. And then he said he made us in different nations and tribes in order that we know one of right? So this is so we're supposed to recognize our diversity and bring us back to oneness and common humanity, but it's not to erase this diversity of culture of and also of, of how we look in different cultural dresses and things such as as that. So but what happens is when we try to have a completely colorblind Islam, when we say that we're erasing uh, culture, don't worry about culture, what happens is the dominant culture of the organization or the Jama'ah almost every time will make their culture the de facto baseline. So then mm. what happens is those who aren't from the dominant culture of the people mm. who establish the Jama'ah they say, oh, but there's no culture in Islam and that's nationalism. What happens is they then try to impose their norms or ways of doing things that aren't clear mm -hmm. in the Quran and try to get people to follow that as the Islamic culture. And that's part of the mm -hmm. problem that we have in the Muslim community and, and the erasure 
of, of, of blackness in Islamic history, as well as the, the ignoring or the ignorance of the great um, uh, African Muslim empires. And I know you had Sheikh uh, Quick on earlier, Hafidullah Ta'ala. Most Muslims don't know that there was a Khilafah in West Africa. There was a middle of right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. People don't know that we the Islamic Empire in Spain uh, was supported and actually extended because of Africa. Yeah. That's right. And also yeah. that according to Asadi in, in Tariq as Sudan, uh, that's been translated into English too. It's in Arabic. And and also even a non-Muslim historian, Ivan Van Sernema has brought forth the evidence that Muslims who were African actually sailed to the Americas before Columbus got lost coming over here, right? So we have a, a grand history and whether you're black or not, this is part of our civilizational history and our spiritual lineage. So just as we have respect for Uzbekistan and the land of Bukhara and Imam Bukhari, Rahimullah Ta'ala and the Persians and the Mughals, as well as the Arabs, of course, um, you know, we, we also need to recognize the importance of, of Black Africans, Sub-Saharan Africans, and their contributions, starting with the noble Sahaba and going down into uh, the contemporary times. Mm. I think you make a very good point. And, you know, when I'm self-reflective on some of the things you say, I feel that the way you can fi probably find that balance is if you prioritize your love. You know, if you love Allah first and then His Messenger, وسلم, you know, afterwards, then I think inherently it gives you that balance in how you approach the love of, like, uh, say, your tribe or your nation or your ethnicity, right? I think it, it, it tempers it. Because it's so easy to just fall in love with it or to think that it is the best, you know, thing on the face of the earth. But once you always compare it to the love, okay, how can I love somebody else, uh, you know, from my tribe who doesn't bow to Allah SWT and I see somebody else from another tribe and he bows to Allah SWT if my first priority is Allah. You, you, you know what I mean? So I think that's, you know, if, if maybe uh, if you approach it in that way, to always prioritize that, that love then we shouldn't have to erase, you know, where we're from or who we are. Because in your book, you show we have Sahaba who are black. Uh, we have Tabi'een that were black. We had Ahlul Bayt. Like you went through, you know, probably, you know, uh, so many. You couldn't even go through all the figures from Ahlul Bayt uh, that were black. And so uh, this is, again, uh, as a Muslim, I say they are a part of me and I'm a part of them. You know, but you make a very good point because in modern day, like uh, liberal ideology, uh, and you can tell me if you experience this t uh, as well, with uh, the whole uh, movement of inclusivity, it's actually caused like a hegemony of the dominant culture. You know, it's like, it's like, okay, no, no, you should be open to everyone and everyone should be part of everything and we should just accept. But that in and of itself is like an ideology. That's in, in, in and of itself is a culture, uh, you know. And so sometimes you can lose a person's identity in that, you know, uh, dominant uh, environment. So that I, I believe that's a very important point uh, that you've made. Um, what do you think is the follow-up to this blackness in this thing? What do you think is the next step for our community to now that we are aware that there is some amazing, um, you know, you know, people who are black in, and Muslim? Uh, what is the next step? Because I feel that uh, this is just like the beginning, like in terms of proper healing, because, you know, obviously, when you look at um, the way a lot of these, you know, uh, protests and, you know, woke type of activism has gone you're like what's your end goal you have no idea what the end goal is you know what i mean but uh is it revenge is it you know what is what is your end goal but i think islam gives us uh, a little bit more clarity and guidance what do you think that looks like from a islamic perspective well i think the first thing is is the issue of islah inside of the muslim community so the reality is is that 
uh, Islam, Dino Islam, the way of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is free of racism. But now we have an issue in certain communities and in certain organizations where there is racism and ethnic chauvinism. So we have to deal with that issue, uh, both from a spiritual perspective and an intellectual perspective. Right. I can tell you of a story right here of I know of a um, of an Islamic school in my state. And there was a young girl whose family's from Senegal and she um, was suicidal. And um, after further review and we looked into the situation is because the school that she was going to, that the other girls in her class were picking on her because of her hair. Right. Mm -hmm. And it kept on going on and on and on. And there was some complaints and it wasn't addressed. And she felt suicidal by basically being bullied by by Arab uh, girls in, 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 in her class. So uh, and I've, I've dealt with this personally on more than one occasion where I've had these complaints come to me and have to deal with this in the community. Right. So we can clean up our own house. Hopefully, number one, this book can serve as a learning tool where we can start teaching this information starting young. So when we talk about uh, the, the Sahaba, of course, we have to talk about Ashura Mubashirin. There's no doubt about it. But even how we talk about Ashura Mubashirin, right? Um, we can talk about and look in this book and mention that, yes, Omar ibn al-Khattab, his, 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 uh, his great-grandmother, and his grandmother were both Ethiopians, right? Mm. Like, how often is that taught? Or that, or that Omar is described as being very tall and darker than myself in skin color, right? So how often is that talked about? Or the black Arabs? Or besides the, 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 the Bilal issue, what about other prominent mm. uh, Sahaba and Sahabiyat, like Um Ayman, who the Prophet said, Um Ayman Umi Bada Umi. Um Ayman is the mother after my blood mother. How differently would black women in the Ummah be treated if we recognize that prophetic reality of what he said? So this is one thing. <clears throat> the second thing is just another issue, and I mentioned this last year when I spoke at the conference. I alluded to it yesterday in the discussion, but <clears throat> it's revisiting how we teach and preach Islam in our community. So Aqeedah is important. And that's the foundation of what has to be taught. And getting our fiqh straight, our fiqh ibadat and fiqh mu'amalat regarding our worship and our business transactions, we have to be straight on that. But we also have to focus on tazkiyah and programs of how we talk about spiritual diseases and the remedies of spiritual diseases. And racism fundamentally, unlike what the woke crowd says, can't be legislated away through laws or protesting or court decisions. This, it is addressing the spiritual diseases that undergird racism, like kibber, like arrogance, like it has it, like envy, right? Uh, and then relating from envy, greed, which relates to economic exploitation that's connected to racism. And then we also have the issues of, 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 of jahl muraqab, right, of compounded ignorance, where people, because of their arrogance, are ignorant, and they don't really know other people, but they think they know, and then try to impose their generalizations, biases, and stereotypes. These issues start at the spiritual level, and we need spiritual curriculum, and then we have to give this spiritual medicine to the broader society, right? So, um, I, and, and I'm all for tougher laws on police and holding police accountable, but you can't legislate racism out of a racist heart. A law won't mm -hmm. do it. It's a spiritual disease. So we have to reframe things, and we just can't be caught up in, in, in this in this uh, Black, uh, Black Lives Matter style uh, neo-Marxist discourse. That's not going to cut it. It's not going. It's not going to. It's not the solution. You know, you, you make a very powerful point because some people have just uh, exchanged their clan uniform for a business suit. You know, like, uh, and you see the same effect on 
you know, people of, of color, impoverished people, what have you, you see, you see that same effect, uh, that mechanism of uh, supremacy, um, oppressing and taking advantage, exploiting people, that machinery is still in place. I remember, um, you know, someone sending me uh, a cartoon uh, saying that, um, or showing that, uh, you know, there's this plane dropping bombs on Muslims and um, uh, the Muslims on their, uh, underneath were being bombed and were saying something to the effect, oh, I, I, I'm so happy now we're being bombed by people of color or like, or a mixed, uh, or a, a black vice president. You know what I mean? So yeah. again, like, it, it, you, you can't uh, just say, okay, yeah, this is, uh, you, you can't sh um, show that you're racist, but maybe you're still like, find a way to have the same effect that racism has. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just, just, just to add camel back on to what you said, now in America, the head, the, the head of the Department of Defense, the Secretary of Defense, is the first African-American male ever who will still be involved and help arm dictatorial regimes that will kill black people who are Muslim, like in Somalia, for instance, right? Yes. So it's, it's having someone that looks black, they still, uh, Obama was black and he, and he expanded AFRICOM and put in drone bases and was bombing Muslims all through Africa. Uh, and, 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 and his father, he knows what village his father's from in Kenya. So that doesn't mean yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're absolutely correct, and I I think what happens unfortunately is a lot of our youth, their energy gets sucked into these things, and uh, you're not really giving the people the right medicine. You, you know what I mean? It's like saying, "Hey, take an aspirin to get yourself rid of cancer." That's all right. you need. That's that, that's not a that's not the right medicine. Maybe it's going to make you feel good for a few hours, but that's not going to cure you of that disease. And unfortunately, I think that's what people are, they fail to recognize is that we are not, you know, curing the disease. We're not targeting that disease. And I, I really appreciated this past week, your lecture uh, in the United Islam Awareness Week on Malcolm X, because how like wise of a man, how like forward thinking uh, he was at his time that the statements that he made and some of the statements he were sharing that he made during his time, you know, in uh, the 50s and early 60s, that uh, they're just as relevant today. You know what I mean? And they're, ju they're just as relevant in, in how we deal with things today. And, um, I, and I, if we can, you know, maybe uh, discuss some of these, uh, you know, some of his uh, uh, accomplishments or some of the things that he said, but one thing that you mentioned was his criticism of the black bourgeoisie yes. right so they feel like and, and some of them would uh ally themselves with uh, white people and it would maybe on the surface seem like they're doing something uh for their communities but they really in essence aren't really changing something or they're not really benefiting their their communities and we see i think some similar signs of that and elements of that today with the muslim community would you would you like to comment on that if if you see that uh, as well yeah so um one of the critiques that uh malcolm x made of course was about the black bourgeoisie and as i mentioned friday night as much as malcolm critiqued outside and critiqued uh white supremacists and their systems that they set up, both racism in America as well as uh, neo-colonialism and imperialism abroad, he also was very critical about black people, about how we operate, about accepting the immorality of the broader culture. And he also critiqued mm -hmm. the black bourgeoisie. And this has always mm -hmm. been a, uh, a tension within black America as I mentioned, Marcus Garvey's father was a very strict, excuse me, um, Malcolm X's father was a very strict Christian who was a follower of the Pan-Africanist uh, Marcus Garvey. And at that time, there was a rivalry between Marcus Garvey, who represent the grassroots of black people in America and in the Caribbean. And then you had W.E.B. Du Bois or Du Bois, who was the first African-American to get a PhD 
from Harvard University who came up with this idea called the talented 10th, that basically it was a black bourgeoisie. It was the 10% of the population of black people who were who he saw were the black elite that would then set the agenda and and and, and supposedly lift up 90% of black people who are normally darker in skin color and not of the elite class, right? And this, and uh, uh, W.B. Du Bois later left and abandoned that uh, ideology and he made Hydra into Ghana and died in Ghana. But it's to say that the same type of element in which Malcolm X's father as a Christian critiqued Malcolm X as a Muslim, um, and I mean as a Sunni Muslim, not just part of the uh, proto-Islamic movement, Nation of Islam, he critiqued uh, the black bourgeoisie. And on the one end, they're um, cozying up so much to the white liberal establishment. And today we would call it the progressive woke establishment that it literally undermines the, the foundation of the community doing for self and again, uh, encourages uh, black people to uh, copy uh, uh, almost slavishly the immorality mm. and the lack of, of societal ethics that is propagated by the dominant uh, liberal culture. Mm. And one could, could, could we say that uh, a supremacist culture really cannot sustain itself without establishing an elite class to collaborate with, like an elite class from the culture that they're dominating, you know? So yeah. they they basically keep their own people in check because if we look at it worldwide, you know, whether it's dictators, whether it's Islamophobes, like the ones that are really active, like Ayan Hirsi Ali, like, you know, the uh, they're, they're basically doing the dirty work for this supremacist culture, you know what I mean? Or these sort yeah. of supremacist forces, you know, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, it's an old playbook. I mean, we know that the British did it in the Indian subcontinent, and they would favor certain people who were who were Uncle Tom Daisies. And then of course, we have the Tadiani movement that was supported by by those people. You know, so we so you have the the, the Daisy Uncle Toms. You know, and then you also have the same issue that took place in the United States of America. And then you have the the the, the proverbial house Negro that we that would get some special privileges and then he would he would red out and turn in uh, the, uh, the, the the masses of black people because uh, maybe he got a little bit better clothes and a little bit better food. And Malcolm X talked about this in, in, in great detail. So this is an old playbook of divine and, and uh, divide and conquer where the supremacists and I'll even go further and say that the those who are adversarial towards Islamic morality and Islamic ethics they'll take a group of people. They could be South Asian, they could be Arab, they could be African, and give them a little token position, give them a little mm. trinkets, maybe even give them a book deal, let them lead a big march somewhere, mm. right? And fund them, mm. and, then, and, and then, but then that person's used to pacify and, and undermine the, the, the grassroots and the masses of people who are committed to the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is the old trick. And unfortunately, Muslims, um, we, we, we're poor students of history because uh, if we read history, then we could clearly see what's going on right now. And I'll end that with, with this point before you continue. Malcolm X Rahimullah Ta'ala said, of all of our studies, history is best qualified to reward our research. Mm. Of all of our studies, history is best qualified to reward our research. So if we want to see what's going on wrong right now and try mm. to avert it in the future, if we just take a look back in the past and study the past, we'll see the same old playbook, right? Mm. How do you think Malcolm X resisted being part of this elite bourgeoisie class? Because there was offers made to him, uh, whether it's through the FBI institutions or uh, being funded by white liberals and so forth. How do you think he resisted that temptation? Because it's tempting, like you wanna put food on the table for your family, uh, you wanna provide house, like you, you want some comforts of life. Uh, you know, how did he resist that? Because 
that that's very tempting for a lot of people, whether it's du'at, speakers today, uh, Muslim leaders. Well, two things. One, it is it relates to the upbringing of his father and his mother who uh, struggled a lot and they took principal stances and he saw it even though he was very young and then he learned about it. And even though he went wayward uh, as, a, as a teen, that seed was planted in him. So he knew that his man, that his father stood up to the clan. He knew the strength of his mother standing up to the to the establishment. They both were leaders in the United Negro Improvement Association, UNIA. That's number one. Number two, simply put, Malcolm was a man of Yaqeen. Mm. He had conviction. And when he believed in something, he he believed in it uh, to the hilt. And he was willing to to give uh, his life for it. And, mm. and, you know, many people don't attribute this quote to him, but he is the rightful person that it, of attribution. But Malcolm X is the one who said that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Mm. He's the one that said that. So, you know, yeah. but it takes, it takes Yaqeen uh, to hold that position. And of course, the day of Malcolm's martyrdom, you know, um, he was facing, uh, his family was facing eviction. And even if their family's home was firebombed, uh, they were living in someone else's home. He had no money, right? So, but you know, so, so Malcolm uh, walked the path of 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 Iman and Yaqeen, But you know, he was he basically was penniless, you know. But mm. for him, it was about seeking the wedge of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Mm. You know, uh, you know that now that you say that, I think probably one of the things that really set him apart from either other, even compared to other uh, black leaders at his time was his level of sincerity. You know, um, like uh, the FBI um, was doing surveillance on him. NYPD was doing surveillance on him. And there's a statement, uh, there's a tweet that was sent out by his daughter, uh, Ilyasa Shabazz. She said, uh, uh, she showed a picture of Malcolm X in Cairo. He says, my father in Cairo weeks before he'd be assassinated at age 39, Despite following his every move, an FBI informant called him a man of high moral character who neither smokes nor drinks. Uh, and, you know, she goes on to say he spoke truth to power and we know that truth is timeless. You know, uh, as a poet, like, but it, say if you compare it to, say, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, through the surveillance, you know, documentation, we this is how they found out about his affair and, and things like that. So he really set himself apart by being sincere like what he was in public that's who he was in private would you say that's one of probably his uh, also one of his greatest defining characteristics yes no doubt about it that malcolm was sincere and that set him aside from others you know i said last month during a talk and i put a lot of thought into it but the man malcolm rahimullah ta'ala um the Sahabi that I think of most when I think of Malcolm X is I think of Salman al-Farisi. And the reason why I say Salman al-Farisi and we're talking about sincerity is because Salman uh, was born into a Zoroastrian family. And then when he, when he came across something that he thought was better, which is Christianity, he left Majusi religion for Christianity. And then when he heard about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and then he came across the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he then sincerely left Christianity and became Muslim. Likewise, Malcolm grew up in a Christian household. And then when he came across something that he found to be better, he joined that, which was the nation of Islam. And just like Salman leaving Christianity, Malcolm left the nation. And when he came across the the, 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 the pure teachings of the Quran and the Sunnah, then he embraced that. So that's a sign of sincerity that you can mm -hmm. say, look, I was following this and I found something that is truer, that is better. I found the haq in admitting that, you know what, I was wrong on some things and now I'm striving to follow the right path. That is sincerity. Mm -hmm. And how many people can do that to say we followed something or were raised in something and then we will 
realize that it was bottle and will leave the way of our forefathers to follow the hawk. Not many people have sincerity to do that, but Malcolm did. That's true. And, I, and you make a very powerful point that if a person is truly sincere, they're willing to change if they can admit they're wrong or if they haven't fully found the truth yet. And you make a, because he's often portrayed as being somebody who was very rigid and strict, but actually he was very flexible. Like when he found the truth, he changed. And similar to like, the, you know, the Sahaba, the mentality of the Sahaba, when an ayat is coming to them, this is the truth. They have like maybe a habit for years that they're engaged in. Uh, they're willing to change in a short period of time. And that can only be done if a person has a sincere heart. So that's actually that's right. a very important point. Like, because uh, as you mentioned, we need to reclaim that history, uh, the order the portrayal of Malcolm X. You know, um, you can't just let Spike Lee do it. You can't just let, uh, you know, these activist groups, you know, portray him how they want to portray him. Uh, especially since, to tell you the truth, uh, Sheikh, I feel that a lot of these groups that um, virtue signal through Malcolm X, at his time, they probably wouldn't have supported him. You know what I mean? It's nice to retroactively do this uh, his, uh, virtue signaling of historical figures, but we got to remember, like, even Muhammad Ali, half of America was against him. They, they thought he was a pariah. Uh, most of the people, uh, you know, despise Malcolm X, you know, especially amongst... Uh, you know, white people. But now it's easy to go back in time and say, oh, yeah, he stood up for something. And, you know, FBI reports say he was sincere. You know, it's easy to to accept somebody like that afterwards. You know, that's right. And, you yeah. know, um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a despised man when he was murdered, including the black bourgeoisie condemned mm -hmm. Dr. King in a uh, in a New York Times op-ed, the head of the National Urban League and the head of the NAACP wrote a joint op-ed condemning King because he dared question the racist policies of the American government operating in Vietnam, and so so they they brought out the black bourgeoisie to condemn Dr. King, even Muhammad Ali, who was a beloved figure in America when he died uh, a few years ago, I think three years ago or so. Yeah, Americans loved Ali more the less he was able to talk. Yeah. Right. When Muhammad Ali, even when Muhammad Ali was starting to lose his physical functioning and, and his speech, and he went to Iraq and negotiated with Saddam Hussein back in 1990 or 91 to get some, uh, uh, some people free who were working for General Motors in Iraq, Muhammad, that was not a popular uh, a move. He was mocked in the New York Times, right? So it's like these yeah. these these leaders, um, and this same thing has happened to Malcolm X within the uh, the black bourgeoisie and even the woke crowd. They try to reform them and remake them into something that they weren't, and yeah. in order to try to appropriate them for their purposes. Yeah. But you know that if Malcolm X were alive today, talking the same way he was the day of his martyrdom. He'd be called uh, a sexist or male chauvinist. He'd be called a homophobe, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and all of these things because he he spoke about uh, uh, traditional uh, gender roles and he talked about also and he was a, he was a family man. Uh, he also uh, talked about uh, 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 heterosexual morality, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, he 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 probably he probably be canceled by many of these woke groups today. Hmm. One thing, uh, I, I wanna know if you have any insight in regards to this um, uh, for, from, a, from a perspective to maybe uh, get new or more in, inside information about his life. But, you know, obviously there's a big change when he went for Hajj. So that was, you know, a, a very big change uh, in uh, his uh, ideas, in his, uh, in, in how he would probably uh, continue uh, in his uh, work in activism and whatnot. Uh, and uh, you know, as you read the biography of, of Malcolm X, there's a few key figures uh, that I think play a significant role in that change, which he also acknowledges. 
so he acknowledges the help that he got to go for Hajj by Sheikh Muhammad Yusuf uh, Shwarbi, who at that time was, I think, a sign from Azhar to be almost like the mufti of like U.S. or the representative uh, yeah. of Islam in, in, in U.S. and Canada. Do we have any information what happened to this sheikh? Like he gave, he basically needed to give him permission to be able to go for Hajj. And uh, Malcolm X describes him as being a, like a very helpful man. And then he also gave him the contact uh, for uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Muhammad um, uh, Abdurrahman Azam, right? And then his son, uh, Dr. Omar Azam, that he met afterwards. Do we know uh, what happened to uh, this? Uh, the firstly, the Sheikh, uh, Doctor, uh, I think Mahmoud Yusuf Shuarbi. Yes, I'm not totally sure, but I'm sure that there's still some people alive, or perhaps even Malcolm's family, his eldest daughters, probably would have some knowledge about that. He also had a Morabi that was with him in New York, uh, Sheikh uh, Ahmed Hassoun, and that's mm -hmm. the uh, that's the Sheikh from Sudan who, who did his uh, who did his ghusl and also uh, was the one who was making dua and there's like some footage and pictures of him. He's wearing, of course, Sudanese style, all white though, with the white amama wrapped up as our Sudanese brothers beautifully wrap it. Um, then of course, uh, Malcolm was a guest at Azhar when he uh, was abroad for seven months, when he left for Hajj and then spent time in Cairo, he was a guest of Sheikh Al-Azhar, uh, Mahmoud Shaltut, Rahimullah Ta'ala. And then he had a special teacher that was guiding him at Azhar. I'm forgetting the name of the teacher off the top of my head. But um, there were, um, you know, uh, there were people along the way who were helping and assisting uh, Malcolm uh, Malcolm X, besides <clears throat> uh, Imam Warth D. Muhammad, Rahimullah Ta'ala, who was the first to really uh, introduce him, uh, uh, the first African-American to ever introduce him to any sort of uh, mainstream knowledge. And, you know, Imam uh, Warth D. Muhammad got kicked out of the nation before mm -hmm. Malcolm did. And he was one of Elijah Muhammad's sons. And actually, there uh, they tried... They the nation was so radical at that time that there even were death threats uh, against Elijah Muhammad's own son for him having the audacity to saying that Allah did not come in the person of a man to Detroit in the year uh, uh, 1930, right? Um, so. And then uh, also those two figures, have you heard anything uh, about them? Uh, the Muhammad Abdurrahman Azam and Dr. Omar Azam, like when you uh, read some of Malcolm X's own diary and also uh, I think it's reflected in, in in the books by Alex Haley, like these two figures like really opened his eyes uh, in terms of like breaking down, you know, the, the black nationalist ideology, you know, because he's like, they were so they gave him his house. They gave their own house to him and treated him like yeah. with such honor and dignity and respect. And like he's like they were treating me like a celebrity. You know what I mean? The way that they uplifted this brother who is coming from they didn't even know him. Oh, you got this. Uh, you, you know, Doctor uh, Sheikh Shwarbi told you to look us up, and just the hospitality and the taking care of the guest. Like it seems like it had like a, a such a fundamental, profound effect uh, on him. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sir. It did, and I heard this yeah. story from um, another Sudanese brother. I was on a panel on recently. Um, if you if you were to go to Care's Facebook page on uh, February twenty sixth, you can see it. Uh, he's a Sudanese brother, also who was part of the MSA, who knew Malcolm for four years, uh, even before he left the nation, and afterwards, and was part of that Hajj group. Um, and he 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 was an eyewitness to that story, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, he probably would have some more information. But one thing I like to say, though, and you mentioned the term black nationalism. <clears throat> I like to mm -hmm. bring in a little slightly different take on it or use different mm -hmm. words. What mm -hmm. those two did is they helped break down black supremacy from Malcolm. Mm -hmm. But as far as black nationalism, 
Malcolm continued to use that term until the time of his martyrdom. He just defined it differently than what we would define as, as Alsobia. What he said that, like other communities, that Black people uh, in urban areas are marginalized and that instead of having people outside of the Black community who are aided and abetted by the government and banks to exploit the, the resources of the Black community, that Black people should control the economics and the culture within the Black community, like in Harlem. And that's what he called Black nationalism. So it wasn't yeah, Black nationalism. But he, he, he always used the term Black nationalism. He was very critical yeah. of, of, mm. of, of Jewish Americans, in particular, who were the uh, business owners, as well as owned the slums, owned the, tenant, uh, owned the tenements that had uh, Black people at the time uh, living in, in, in most major cities, almost like in so-called third world conditions, while they were getting rich and, and, and lining their park pockets off of, off of our misery. Yeah, no, that's true. I agree with you. He he changed his perspective on about black nationalism. That's uh, I think that's an important like distinction to make for sure. But he 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 did uh, definitely mention even after Hajj about bringing together black unity, uh, black empowerment, and so forth uh, as a priority. Uh, so no, just uh, for mentioning oh, yeah. that. Um, and uh, do you have any thoughts? Did you see that Netflix documentary? On who killed uh, Malcolm X? <clears throat> yeah, I saw it. I saw it, and I thought that some of it was a little bit problematic. Mm. I, I don't know, frankly, and I'm not, I'm not assigning blame to him, but I don't see mm. how you can have a discussion about Malcolm X and that whole scenario and not mention uh, uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan one time. Mm. I, th- I found it to be extremely odd. Um, and then also, I know some information about the the narrator uh, of that too. That's been involved in in some divisive things, including some CVE type activities with the government. So uh, that's just some background on him. And you could look up his name and just do a little Google search, and you see uh, some of what I'm talking about. But um, you know, Master Louis Farrakhan, and he publicly apologized about it, but. Mm. Li- decades later but he even himself said that his words helped lay the groundwork or the environment for malcolm to be uh assassinated because he became the national spokesperson of the nation after malcolm was booted out and he made speeches and wrote uh articles in the muhammad speak saying that malcolm x was worse than judas worse than Brutus, mm-hmm. worse than Benedict Arnold, and that, mm-hmm. so, and that someone like him should have his his tongue cut out and delivered to the messenger, meaning Elijah Muhammad. That's what that's what Louis Farrakhan preached. Mm-hmm. That's what he wrote, and that that was not mentioned in that mm-hmm. Netflix documentary. As, as much of a consequential figure, he mm-hmm. is still in, a, in, in Black America, I found it to be extremely uh, odd, and I'll, just, mm-hmm. and I'll just leave it at that. <clears throat> what are your thoughts on the conclusion that they come to in the documentary? Like they kind of point to this figure, which I felt it it, it was a little bit strange because apparently, you know, or you have a prime suspect, and you don't visit that prime suspect for however long, and you avoid it, and then you somehow mysteriously then dies before you can uh, meet him or talk to him or whatever. Uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, how they ended it? Yeah, that guy, Well, I mean, I believe it, it probably uh, did happen that way, but that guy was an informant. And like, I, I knew about that guy long before mm-hmm. that documentary came out. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, it was kind of a known thing. And as you could see, but I had heard of that guy's name and it, and it was basically known that he was being protected by the government. Also, we knew, and the Shabazz family said for years that they believed that two of those other people who did prison time were innocent uh, mm-hmm. of the crimes that took place. <clears throat> and and Talmud uh, Hayer, who later became a Sunni and public re- publicly repented, 
mentioned this point. And then uh, we have the, um, we also have the issue of the letter that just came out recently where of the cop who confessed and said yes. that the that that the government, that the New York Police Department and the FBI were not only tracking Malcolm's every move, but they knew what was going to happen. So uh, it, it's the other two gunmen that were involved in it uh, were probably working for the FBI or the uh, New York Police Department, uh, just like the Malcolm's chief bodyguard that day, Gene Roberts was was it was was an informant working for the nypd just as the fbi and the chicago police uh four years later murdered fred hampton now that's been exposed uh there's even a movie that came out recently called judas and the messiah where you can mm -hmm. check that out where yeah the the, the fbi and the, and the government they were behind uh all sorts of not only smear campaigns and people getting locked up like Imam Jamil El Amin, may Allah free him, who's unjustly incarcerated now. But yeah, the, the government, uh, many black people on the street level always believed that the Nation of Islam was not the group that, that orchestrated and planned mm -hmm. that assassination. It was the government. And another proof of this is that Malcolm almost died in Egypt. He was poisoned in Egypt. Mm. And yes, that's he, true. And he mentioned there were CIA and FBI agents following him around, even when he was at Hajj. Mm. That government allowed, and he mentioned it, two white men were following him around. He was being followed by two Kafirs working for the government at Hajj. And those and they were allowed in. He was being followed in Egypt by CIA and FBI. So um, they tried to kill him in Egypt, and it didn't work out. Uh, they, they want him dead on foreign soil and not in America, but then they end up killing him in New York. Mm. Uh, do, do you think it's a, a case of, like, again, you have these puppet masters, and they get um, these other lower-level people to do the dirty work for them, so to speak? Was no doubt about it. The one guy that we yeah. that we know was one of the shooters. Uh, he was black and he was mm -hmm. an informant. The guy mm -hmm. who's supposed to have been in his security that day that 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 was working for the New York Police Department. He was an undercover New York cop. They end up getting a promotion and became undercover with the FBI. Um, so it's, it's no uh, that cop that just confessed of the conspiracy. All these people were black people moving amongst the Muslims and and um, faking like they were Muslims. And mm -hmm. they were straight up pawns, uh, uh, munafikin, uh, mm -hmm. working for the government. And, and, and what is sad for these people who act like, uh, you know, the, 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 the Trojan horse in our community, so to speak, these people, they don't realize that it's not satisfying. It's actually very harmful for your soul and your heart to do things like this. Uh, there was one brother who actually uh, ended up uh, almost revealing that this is what uh, he was involved in the community, like a Muslim. He was going in, you know, a Muslim community and, and doing this, these types of things, setting up Muslims. And he had a mental breakdown, Shaykh. Like, it's not something that brings you inner peace when you're trying to uh, exploit and damage and harm people because the people think that, oh, the motivator is seeking justice. The motivator is injustice, it's money. That's what motivates uh, a lot of these people to do what they do, uh, power, uh, money, you know, things like that. These are the primary motivators and it's not something that uh, is wholesome and nourishing for the soul. That's right. Uh, so there's two things. So there's two different types of informants. I'll mention those. But first, there's two motivations. Informants are not patriots. And we still have informants amongst us to this day, uh, and amongst in the Muslim community and African-Americans in general. But there's two types. There's there's two motivations for informants. The first is the informant themselves is a criminal and they have yeah. charges that they're under and they work out a deal with the government so that in order they don't get prosecuted and go to prison or, 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 or for them not to get deported. 
of the country, they agreed to be an informant. That's the first reason. The second reason is money, that they end up getting paid off and they make it into a career of spying on their own people. And there's two types of informants. The first type of informant is one who just is quiet and just observes and collects information and gives intelligence data back to law enforcement. That's the quiet informant. Then the other one is what is called the agent provocateur. This is the one that comes and tries to incite people to do stuff, that tries to stir up fitin, that will come to people speaking one way and try to uh, um, excite them and, and, and incite them to some sort of potential criminal activity that they weren't planning, that they basically mm. rile them up. And then once the, the people bite for it, then the government comes and say, gotcha, we, we got mm. us some terrorists, right? So mm. that, that's, how they, that's how the FBI uh, has always worked. Uh, I can't speak for the Canadian side, but as far as the FBI, they've always worked that way. Uh, inside the Muslim community, going back to the days of Malcolm uh, to 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 right now. Yes, yes, no, you're absolutely correct, and, and that only makes sense when you know your budget is involved, your salaries are are tied to getting some type of activity and results. You know, you can't just you have to you you can't just wait for something to happen. You got to make something happen. You know, that's right. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, I, I want to actually end off our session with uh maybe getting some uh points of uh guidance in terms of how we can take some of the strengths or lessons that we learned uh from malcolm x in our current day activism and dawah like what can we take from his legacy and uh, apply it today because we have our own figures from modern history that we can draw from and so instead of looking at you know, some other activists that are oftentimes promoted in the media. How can we take that legacy of, Mal uh, of Malcolm X and make it our own and use it uh, to give principle and purpose to our DAWA? Okay, so I would say two things. So there's been a phrase that's been coined and been used amongst Muslims in the last few years called unapologetic Muslim or unapologetically Muslim. And, mm -hmm. but normally, how this term is used and actually who, who coined it or popularized it in our community, it means being unapologetically Muslim as an identity group with conservatives, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean being unapologetic uh, about the Sharia or being unapologetic about our akhlaqiyat, our ethics mm -hmm. as Muslims, right? So mm -hmm. what Malcolm taught us is how to be truly unapologetic, meaning that we give uh, uh, our allegiance to sacred principles over political parties. Mm. And so he talked about this issue with the wolf and the fox, that the fox were the so-called liberals or progressives, and the, uh, that was the fox. The wolf on the right was, was, the, was the wolves, right? The right were the wolves, the left yeah. uh, were the foxes. And so his position was, we're not supposed to give bayah to either group, right? Mm. We 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 have our agenda, and then we work with inside of our agenda. And when we can work with people on certain things, it's based upon a narrow scope. It's not that we go around and say we're progressive, we're unapologetic progressive Muslim uh, people of color, uh, intersectional feminists, blah blah, and all these other like yeah. things, right? That that's not that's not Malcolm. Um, the other thing is, is that, uh, that was Malcolm as far as his social political, um, uh, critique, but from hearing stories from the Shabazz family and even what's been preserved and, and pictures and writings in the Malcolm X, Dr. Betty Shabazz center in Harlem, New York, is that Malcolm in his activism, he was committed to Dean. Malcolm mm. prayed. Malcolm prayed to Hajjud. There's lessons of, of Malcolm's um, uh, Arabic lessons. And when he was uh, learning Arabic and writing Arabic, he wasn't a Sunni, but for about a year. And he was 39 years old. Right. Mm. How many of us were born and raised in the Dean? 
and don't even know Mubtada wa Khabar, right? You know, you know, we don't even know how to read the Quran properly, right? But or, or we don't make tahajjud. When Malcolm was disciplined, Malcolm prayed the night prayers. Malcolm was was a seeker of ilm. He was learning a lughatul arabiyah, right? Um, all of this at 39 years old. So he he can, we can see that if we want to be uh, uh, activists and have moral courage. Well, there's a spiritual component to it, and that's connecting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not just praying the five fara'id prayers, but standing up at night, you know, breaking our sleep and and and, and seeking to learn sacred knowledge, irrespective of how old we are, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's and that's probably the greatest inspiration about Malcolm's life to me is actually the second part. Mm. Yeah. No, you what you're saying. Uh, I think inherently would breed a lot of strength to the da'wah, you know. Um, I often, like when I see brothers, you know, behaving in an immature way or, you know, not taking things, uh, you know, seriously or the da'wah seriously or if you have like organizing for an event or something like that. You know, there's there's a funny quote from Chris Rock. I just like to say to lighten the move, but also give a point uh, at the same time. You know, it's just like, you think Malcolm X died so you could walk around looking like a chump? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, here was a person that he exudes strength. You know, uh, he uh, he he took uh, all what every anyone and everyone would have could have used as an excuse to give up to just you know lay yourself go by the wayside, and uh, he showed that you know you don't have a college education. Okay, let me copy out the dictionary. There's like, there's something that you can do to uh, better yourself, to make yourself stronger. And unfortunately, we get caught up in this shortcut mentality. Oh, somebody else will do that for us. Or maybe we can like our way, post, you know, post and like our way out of, you know, this uh, situation, you know? Yeah, let me add on to that. And it's a very salient point. But despite Malcolm talking about oppression, and what white supremacists in the Klan did and the White Citizens Council, despite all of these critiques that he had growing Mm. up in a society that was much more overtly racist than it is now, he never used that as an excuse not to improve himself and to strive to do better. He wasn't waiting for for anyone to give him freedom, justice, and equality. He wasn't waiting for, Mm. for white folks. He wasn't begging them uh, to, to, to give him dignity, he 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 found a way to to, to do it, and, and he struggled. He didn't make excuses. That's true, and I think that's the part of the balance of uh, Islam is that uh, you know one could say say you have an oppressive system. Islam isn't oh just be resilient, just be patient, and just work on yourself, uh, or the other extreme that. Uh, Every excuse of your shortcoming is due to the system. You know what I mean? So it's the balanced approach where I need to be, I need to have sabr, I need to have istiqamah, I need to be resilient, I have to deal with the ignorance of people. And at the same time, I can try to change the unjust system. I can try to change what's wrong uh, institutionally or what the prevailing system may be. And so they're not mutually exclusive. That's you know, right. You can, we, we can do both things and and uh you know and unfortunately sometimes that's how we approach problems in our community right it's like we can only either do one thing or the other or we can only pick this issue or that or we can only you know okay let's just worry about like you know kids and drugs and we won't worry about like uh racism or we won't worry about you know uh, other things you know i think we should we should give ourselves more credit you know we can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time so to speak that's right so no, Jazamakhir, uh, Sheikh, uh, I really enjoyed our, our, our conversation. Like we talked about so many uh, interesting things and, uh, you know, the feedback that we're getting is like, you know, people are uh, really blown away. I want people to really uh, go out and benefit and purchase this book, Blackness and Islam. Uh, Sheikh, where, 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 can people, uh, where can people purchase this book? Um, you could go to... Um... Uh, imamghazali.org 
That's the El Ghazali Institute. Uh, it's also on Amazon.com. Uh, you can go get it from there as well. Or you also can go to uh, CelebrateMercy.com and you can get it from Celebrate Mercy. So those are three places you can get it from. Yeah, no, I got my copy uh, from Amazon so I was able to get it very quickly. Uh, so uh, you know, for that. And this book, again, we're going to be giving this away uh, to the best post, inshallah, from this session. So take advantage of that. So uh, make a nice post and then inshallah you can uh, you know, win this book. All right, Zama Khair, Sheikh. Uh, I, I look forward to our future conversations and hopefully uh, being able to get together. Uh, it was a pleasure once again. And uh, I think, you know, uh, Sheikh, somebody proposed this to me and I'm going to like just put it out there for you, maybe percolate uh, <clears throat> for yourself. But once like obviously the pandemic calms down and, and, and all of these different things, you know what might be a good uh, series that we can partner up on is to uh, retrace uh, the steps of Malcolm X when he went on, like went for Hajj, like kind of go to the different, you know, countries and visit different Muslims and, you know, talk about that. I think that might be a cool project that uh, we can collaborate upon, inshallah. That could be awesome. That, that would be awesome. And also I just got communication today, but you know, Malcolm X day is May 19th every year. And there's a program, and I was just told from Imam Abdul Khalid in uh, in New York that they are going to be having it uh, again this year. So, um, if any of you all are able to get your your shot, inshallah, and I'm sure they'll I'll post some information as I get more. But I plan on going to New York and and go to Harlem. Uh, for Malcolm X Day and, and join the Muslims in New York. There's people from other states normally yeah. who, who who travel uh, to uh, to New York for Malcolm X Day. So that's kind of an annual thing that we do. So uh, that's something that's else. Good. And you could meet uh, a couple of Malcolm's daughters uh, too. Uh, Sister Ilyasa is is always there. Mashallah. And I think that'll be close to the time of Eid as well. Yeah, be after, be after, yeah. Uh, Eid yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, Sheikh, we're going to continue, and uh, I think we, as you mentioned before, uh, this is just the first step in reviving legacy of Malcolm X, and it's not just to do in and of itself, but this is part of the general tajdid islah that we need to do within our communities. Once again, uh for your contribution, and we look forward to working with you again in the future. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.